This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good evening, everybody. Uh, Tonight, we're going to continue our study of Revelation, and we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 4. And I'm going to read that to you real quick, if you'd like to turn there to follow along. It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. In order to direct our thoughts, uh, I want to look at uh, a song. I'm just going to read it. We're not going to sing it. Take time to be holy because I want to, you know, just highlight the words here. It says, take time to be holy. Speak oft with thy Lord. Abide in him always and feed on his word. Make friends of God's children. Help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessing to seek. Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like him thou shalt be, thy friends in thy conduct his likeness shall see. Take time to be holy, let him be thy guide. And run not before him, whatever betide, in joy or in sorrow, still follow the Lord, and looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. Take time to be holy, be calm in thy soul, each thought and each motive beneath his control. Thus led by his spirit to fountains of love, thou soon shalt be fitted for service above. You're probably wondering why I referenced the song and how it relates to Revelation 1 verse 4. In this verse, what we see is a greeting or a benediction as it's sometimes called. And what we see John basically saying is, hello, in a polite way. He's wishing well on the people he intends to address in Revelation. And for my whole life, including right up to when I was doing this lesson, when I came upon words like this, I've tended to breeze through them quickly, and I suspect most people do. Uh, I, did, I did not really see great value in them, and I felt that the meat of the scripture is what followed. And um, as far as uh, reading this, I mean, who really wants to read spend a lot of time on somebody else saying, hello, how are you, I hope you're well, And I wish you well in the future. And I thought about, do I even want to say anything at at all about these? You know, it's taking a while, taking longer than I thought to get through the first. I I was like, man, this is first four of chapter one. Brian, good grief, getting caught up on this. But I found myself being led to wait. Because something about that approach just wasn't sitting well, felt incorrect. And I was wondering, well, what in the world am I feeling this way, way for? And, you know, in part, it's because there's nothing that's unimportant in God's word, and it's all written for a reason. We know that. This uh, passage of scripture captures John taking the time for what I typically dismiss as the small niceties. But in dismissing them, I realized I was highlighting one of my own weaknesses. So I ended up taking a a moment to put a whole lesson together. I didn't intend to, but a whole lesson together on verses 4 And first few words of verse 5, and it seemed ridiculous to me because I am, as you know, a straight-to-business type of guy. I have very little interest in what I consider time wasters. And I'm reminded of when I first read J.R.R. Tolkien's 
Lord of the Rings saga. Now, anybody that's familiar with that fictional work will remember that in the middle of a fantastic plot are all these songs and poems. And normally, I'm not one to skip over pages in a book. Charity is, and it drives me nuts. You know, she'd be reading the end of the book at the beginning. I'm like, how can you do that? This may be the only book I can ever recall skipping over pages. Um, and I'm sure if Joe were here, he'd say that's sacrilege. But I skipped those poems and songs because, frankly, I found them boring and tedious. I've always hated poetry. Well, I don't hate poetry, but when I had to study it in English class, I really didn't care for it. Uh, they add nothing to the story that I really need to understand it. In fact, you can take every one of those poems and songs out in that book, and the story is still the same. So why did Tolkien write it? Well, I'll let Tolkien himself tell us. He says, verse is in many ways like tennis or volleyball. The net is just a nuisance. The white lines are silly and unreasonable. All they do is to make some lovely hard hits count as out. But without them, well, I suppose you could just swipe the ball where you felt inclined, but actually, the most beautiful, graceful, and determined strokes are made by those who have learned to obey the rules and still hit the ball with force. Now, Tolkien was not trying to bore us or waste our time is what you want to take away from this. Rather, he was trying to focus our minds and he's saying that you can throw words on a page that make perfect sense to the author. But in order to put your readers in the right frame of mind, you have to think about what you really want to say. You have to prepare the mind of your audience to process it while in the right frame of mind. And then you have to deliver your thoughts with certain guidelines in mind, just like you do in a volleyball game. There you have a net, you have some lines, and you have some rules to follow. You can hit the ball hard, and you can get it over the net, but can you avoid hitting the ceiling? Can you avoid knocking it out of bounds? One thing I always struggle with is when that ball comes over the net, you can hit it back however which way you want, but Derek and Amy in particular have always been there to remind me that that's not how you play, Brian. That's not smart. What you do is you set it, and you let somebody spike it, because that spike, it's going to be hard to even touch, let alone return over the net, and that's very true. There's a focus that has to be there. So to create focus in his readers, John knew he needed to approach them carefully by first thinking about the best way to approach the matter, then preparing his reader to think about it in light of the Christian life so that it delivered Christ's intended impact into the lives of the believer. John understood his great responsibility in the delivery of this. That's why at the beginning of the book, he adds a, a personal touch, as it were, and I found three principles, or we'll get to those in a minute. I found some things to draw out of it. First of all, what's in a name? John identifies who he is very simply. He just says John. And in that short identification, John, there's a lot being communicated. There is power in a name. Why is there power in a name? Well, a name encapsulates everything that has come to be known about a person. If I say my name is Brian, I could be the Brian that stands before you now, or I could be Brian, the co-founder of the Beach Boys musical group. That Brian wrote famous songs like I Get Around, Help Me Rhonda, Good Vibrations, He Can Surf, He's World Famous, He's Got Great Hair. Brian is also 80 years old. And like so many rich and famous people, he's known to have used drugs and he suffers from depression and mental ailments. And if I were that Brian, you would have a different view about what I might say because of who I am. However, if I say that I'm Brian Hutton, 
Well, that changes things. Because that other Brian is Brian Wilson. You now know that I am not Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys band. Instead, I'm a bit more boring, I suppose. If I write a song, it would likely be a gospel hymn and no one wants to buy my music. They don't even know who I am for the most part. I don't have beach hair. I've never used drugs and only my wife has had occasion to question my mental fitness. You also know that Brian Hutton isn't famous because Brian Hutton tends to have a low tolerance for the way certain people behave and as a result, I'm more likely to seclude myself than seek fame, so I'm not famous. Brian Hutton, you see, is a very different person from Brian Wilson. So too is John of Revelation, different from just about every other John. The Bible tells us he was one of only 12 men called to be an apostle by Jesus. He was the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, also an apostle. He was a member of the kingdom of Christ, just like the rest of the church. He was present at the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. He was at Jesus' transfiguration. He was at the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus was arrested. He was patient in his endurance, but John and his brother James were given the nickname Sons of Thunder by Jesus. Some believed this was a reference to their tempers. Some have even said, yes, he was the disciple that Jesus loved, but that did not mean he was particularly lovable. He was more likely a typical fisherman of his time. That would be rough cut, hardworking, brash, and maybe short on social graces. On one occasion, after Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, a revealing argument broke out amongst the disciples over their internal pecking order. Who was the greatest? Well, after Jesus disarmed that argument, John reported that he and others had confronted someone who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they had told that man, you better stop that, because he does not follow with us, Luke 9, 49. It seems like they might have been a little selfish of their position and authority, doesn't it? But the jockeying for power and prestige were not over for James and John. Luke immediately describes the final journey to Jerusalem and an incident in Samaria in a town where Jesus was not welcome. And John and James, eager to flex what they might have considered heightened authority among the Lord's followers, volunteered to take action. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's Luke 9.54. That doesn't seem very loving, does it? Apparently, this desire to be powerful ran in their family. In Matthew 20, verses 20 through 24, we see John's mother come to Jesus to ask a favor. And it was nothing too big, of course. It was just that her two sons would be granted to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus as he sat on the throne of God. Of course, what mother wouldn't want the best for her sons? But still, I'll bet John and James were a little embarrassed that she'd ask that, you'd think. Especially after Jesus said, you don't even understand what you're asking for. The price to pay for such an honor is too high. Jesus asked what was probably meant as a rhetorical question. He said, do you really want to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? And by that he meant that they want to take on the sin of the whole world, die on the cross and be crucified as he was about to be. And you know what their answer was? Yes, sir. We're ready. This thing's a little loud, I think. I'm reminded of the Jesus play where James and John are chanting, Sons of Thunder, Sons of Thunder. I'm not going to yell it because the microphone's too loud. But you remember that when we watched that play. They were on the docks and 
Not very surprisingly, when the other ten disciples heard this presumptuous request of James and John, they were greatly displeased. I guess some fishermen in those days were lacking a certain degree of self-awareness and couth and humility. Nevertheless, we're told that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the one who was leaning on Jesus' breast and asked Jesus who his betrayer was at the Last Supper. He stepped in to take care of Mary as a son would when Jesus was crucified on the cross. He went on to be an outspoken witness of all that Christ did while he was on the earth. He's credited with writing the Gospel of John, the first, second, and third epistles of John, and recording the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he preached not for fame, but because he loved his fellow men and he wanted as many of them to be saved as possible. He was known to say that he had no greater joy than to hear that his children, that is, those he brought to Christ, were walking in the truth. He was a brother and, part, and partner in tribulation. Tradition holds that on one occasion, John was scheduled for boiling in oil. But he escaped that by divine, divine intervention. He was banished and imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, as we've discussed before, because he preached Jesus. And that could easily have been a death sentence. But Emperor Domitian died and John was brought back to Ephesus, where he was confined for two more years. And it's written that he was eventually compelled to drink poison and it didn't harm him. And then he finally died in peace. Paul later describes John as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. The very first church was in Jerusalem and John was a pillar of that church. So you see, when John identified himself, the reader knew who they were dealing with. They knew his character based on his past deeds. And he had a lot of bona fides. His name carried a lot of weight. And as we continue to read, we see John take the time to identify next who he was writing to. To the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you in peace. Now, notice that John took the time to acknowledge the person and presence of his audience. He could have simply started in on the message. But sometimes it's the little things. The time taken to acknowledge the other person that sets the stage for success. Oh, how often I have failed in this. I know what I want to say. I know what you need to hear. I'm going to say it and I expect you to listen. And I don't always take the time to say, how are you doing today? Are things wrong in your life? I'm ashamed to say that often if I were to reveal my heart to you, I don't care. I just want you to hear what I have to say. And that is not right. And John was not doing that here. He took the time to acknowledge his audience. They knew who they were. I mean, they're going to receive the letter, but he wrote it. He wants them to know he's acknowledging them. Despite the roughness around his edges that we already looked at, apparently John had grown much wiser over time from the time when he offended his fellow apostles. For you see, now John is engaging in what we might call social graces. He's taking the time for niceties. You know, John had the high ground, and when John spoke, we can assume that the church would be expected to listen. But I want to make the case that John was demonstrating some humility in how he carefully worded this greeting. As I said, he took the time to acknowledge the other party, and he approached in what I feel is a humble matter. We just listed the record of John. It's impressive. Why not just say, this is the John? But he didn't mention any of that here, and that's what I want you to notice. 
When John approached these seven churches, he took the time to think about the best approach. By taking a humble approach, John was following the same guidance we see Paul give in Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now that may be easy to do in some cases, but I'll bet if you're like most people, it can be difficult when you are dealing with people who are in great fault and error. And it's your job to correct them. It's not easy to esteem yourself lower than them at that point, is it? And because of that, the message that you have that they may need to hear may not be heard. For his audience, John would not be the son of thunder. He would not be the apostle whom Jesus loved. He would not be the caretaker of Mary. He would not even be the author of inspired scripture. No, he would just be John. And that's how he began the letter. He understood that the reputation that his name had earned in service to the glory of God would be sufficient. He didn't have to throw it in their face. Furthermore, as we will see in just a few short words in the verse, John didn't want the attention on himself. And you see that in his other writings as well. He wanted it on Jesus, who is worthy of all the praise and attention that can be given. He understood that when it comes to teaching, preaching, admonishing, or rebuking, humility is key. And I would encourage each of us to let our actions, as guided by God and the Holy Spirit, speak for themselves. We don't have to point out the high ground that we may very well be standing on. We deliver the message. Let's not be puffed up in vainglory or seeking honor for ourselves or beating people over the head with the Bible. Let us not approach, approach with the expectation that we should or must be listened to because of what may be perceived as our higher moral ground. Because that approach starts with a demand that we be listened to rather than a humble and loving appeal. Instead, let the Holy Spirit do the convicting and let us be seen merely as the humble messenger. Look at this quote from Jerry Lewis. You may catch more flies with honey than vinegar, but you'll get them to work a lot harder if you use a fly swatter. Now, while humorous, I want you to think on whether or not that is true. The second social grace that we see from John is an offering of grace. And when John wishes grace upon his readers, what he's really saying is, salutations, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm praying that the divine influence of God is present upon your hearts. It's reflected in your lives in such a way that brings you limitless pleasure and joy as the gift of God. That's what grace is. We haven't yet begun to go over what John actually had to say to these seven churches, but when we do get there, you're going to see there were some very hard things that needed to be said. It was going to be a tough pill to swallow for anybody receiving that, and the point I'm trying to make is that John thought and prepared his words to ensure a delivery with optimal reception and results. It's the old adage, you do catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Now, when engaging with people, you're typically going to do so in the environment that you create. So I have three principles that I find in the way John chose to deliver his message. The first principle, don't go looking to beat the message into others. If you go into a situation looking for a fight, the odds are very high you'll find one. The thing about picking fights is, 
There's a time in your life where you might be good at it, and then there's a time in your life where you bite off more than you can chew, and then there's a time in your life where picking a fight results in you getting beaten. When we approach a delicate issue, or in the spirit of admonishment or correction, we need to give a thought to the type of environment that we want to proceed in. John promotes the idea of peace. This is the peace of Philippians 3, verse 7. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. This peace is one of our most powerful tools as we attempt to read, hear, and keep the word by continuing that cycle of learning and teaching others. You know, I once was visited by a man who uh, was trying to get us to go to church in their local church. He was uh, a Baptist, I believe. He came to our house. And he told us that his church was very active in the world, witnessing of Christ and condemning sin. And he said one of his favorite ways to do this was to hang out at the local gas station that was frequented by Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know why they all went there. Because he loved to attack their cult and he would get into heated arguments on purpose in the parking lot with these people who were just trying to go to the convenience store. And he'd tell them about how they were going to hell. And he bragged that he always told them he'd be laughing when he was proven right in eternity. Now, I ask you, what environment did that man cultivate? Was it one of peace or was it one of conflict? Did he set out in the spirit of peace? Or did he set out to create conflict? He may have been right in his views and in some ways he was. But his approach demonstrated derision and superiority, not love and concern. And can you guess how many Jehovah's Witnesses he successfully converted? Let's just say that his approach likely turned more people away from Christ than it ever did from the Jehovah's Witnesses. How many of the lost or even the weaker babes in Christ saw his actions and were so repulsed that they turned away from Christianity altogether? If that's a follower of Christ, they may reason, then I want no part of Christ. What a tragedy. And you're going to see throughout Revelation that John, he still says the hard things. But he didn't, he didn't give an inch on the doctrine of Christ. But he determined from the very beginning to set out in the spirit of peace. And like John, when we set out to spread the word and will of God, we have to do so with the spirit of peace in mind. That peace is undergirded by humility, love, and genuine concern. So if peace is not your goal, then you necessarily will have to examine your heart to find out what's wrong. When we approach with the mind of Christ, love will supersede anger, indignation, and a prideful need to be right. Second principle, don't deceitfully try to beguile or flatter others into listening to your message. I love this about John. If you offer a compliment or a praise to somebody in a disingenuous way, your false impression or intentions will be evident to all. That's why every time somebody tells me, you look handsome today, I'm like, get out of here. When John addresses the seven churches, there isn't a hint of flattery or deceit in his approach. Now, some might look at this and say, well, wouldn't it be better, you know, if they buttered them up just a little bit? Wouldn't they be even more receptive if he, you know, poured out some platitudes about how great they were doing, but first, you know, like, hey, look, I'm with you. I know the struggle's real. I didn't want to say this, but Jesus told me to. He didn't do any of that. It's like, look, I, I get it. None of that happened. 
Let's see what the Bible says about flattery. Proverbs 29, verse 5. A man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. You know, flattery ends up being a trap. How is it a trap? Well, if you flatter a person, what you're appealing to is their pride. And when you puff up a person in pride, you create in them a sense of self-sufficiency that renders other people, other thoughts, other guidance, even God, obsolete. Flattery creates a trap that once they're entangled in it, it actually shuts up the ears of the one that's being flattered. Look at what the writer of Psalm 36, 1-3 says about the one who's grown accustomed to being flattered. It says, There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. You see, the person who is flattered is encouraged to begin lying to themselves. You ever found a person that lies to themselves? It's impossible to reason with them. They're lost. They're in a trap. Elsewhere in the Psalms, we read that flattery is nothing more than a form of lying. And the writer indicates that flattery is a manifestation of corruption, not only in the heart of the one being flattered, but in the one doing the flattering. Psalm 55, 21 says, The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Here's the truth about flattery and manipulating a person with false words of praise. What you're really doing is you are maneuvering them, manipulating them, positioning them with false praise meant to put them at ease and build trust in you so that you can jam the sword in. Now you may not think about it like that, but that's what it is. You don't flatter a person to build them up. You flatter a person to manipulate them, plain and simple. That is not how God operates. It's not how John operated. And it isn't how we should operate as we interact with others. The truth is sometimes we choose flattery over the truth of God's word because we're fearful that we won't be received and heard otherwise. But that's not what Proverbs tells us. And imagine if John had done that. Hey, look. I think the Lord's being a little harsh here because I think you guys are doing a good job. In spite of your failures, I understand it. Now, here's what Jesus had to say. It would have undermined everything. Proverbs 27, verses 5 through 6. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Give me a friend that directs my attention to the things I need to work on in order to be better off over a person who lies to me any day. Is that the type of friend that you look for? More importantly, is that the type of friend you listen to? That's the type of friend John was. Proverbs 28 verse 23 says, In the end, people appreciate honest criticism more than flattery. Why? Because it's not, it doesn't entrap them. It doesn't keep them spinning their wheels in the mud. It allows them to escape. And the third principle I find in John's delivery is, don't be naive in assuming that your message will be received in the spirit of peace. This is a difficult one when you start talking to people who do not believe. In particular, uh, it's hard when you're talking to people who are Christians and are set in their ways but need correction. Now, if you're young or you haven't spent a whole lot of time in spreading the gospel to others, you can get the idea that the people you talk to are going to respond to the gospel the same way you do, with joy and excitement, and they're feeling good about the good news. But that is oftentimes not the reaction that we receive. Oftentimes we receive scorn instead. Listen to this proverb. Proverb 9, 
Verses 7 through 8. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee, rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Now we might not think of people in the church as being scorners, or wicked, or a fool, as some translations use for these verses. But have you ever heard it said that pride makes fools of us all? Just a small amount of experience in spreading the word of God will quickly demonstrate that this fallen world has more scoffers and scorners and angry people than it does humble people aware of their shortcomings and who are willing to listen. Maybe you've even learned that lesson for yourself already. Sometimes we don't say the hard things, the loving things, the needful things, because we've been stung by the hateful responses of people in the past and we've decided we don't want to deal with that stress. But John didn't do that. In fact, John's about to say some very hard things to these seven churches. But I want you to take note that he doesn't turn away from delivering the message, even in the face of possible scorn. What John does instead is to prepare the minds of the listeners and preemptively manage the pride that he may encounter. You see, John loves these churches enough to deliver a tough message of rebuke but understands that he's up against the same pride that's present in everyone's hearts, including the church. So he brought the idea of peace with him from the very beginning. Too often we seek peace only after we've traded blows and we realize, well, this is getting out of hand. I better throttle back a little bit. John thought about how to do it beforehand. Proverbs 14, verse 3, In the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise shall preserve them. When we speak, are our words hitting the other person like they were a club made out of our pride that is hurtful rather than helpful. Again, I'm ashamed to say I've given a beat down to many people in my life. And worse yet, convinced myself that they deserved it. Pride can cause us to say the right things in the wrong way. Proverbs 16, verse 18, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. John could not afford to fail. He couldn't afford to bring destruction. Destruction was already there. He had a message that had to be delivered, so he had to think about how he was going to do that. He had to make sure that he didn't stir up pride and resistance. So in the spirit of peace, John followed these three principles. Don't go looking to beat the message into others. Don't go deceitfully trying to beguile or flatter others into listening to you. And don't naively assume that you will be well received. Peace is something you should expect to bring rather than expect to find. The final point I want to draw out from our text verse today is that we are not to go alone. You'll notice that John says grace to you and peace from who? From him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Now when we're about the work of spreading God's word, we're trying to save lives in eternity. And so we don't want to mess that up. We already spoke about overcoming the pride that's present not only in the heart of the listener but in our own hearts as well. And we all know that our pride can only be managed by the grace of God. It can never be overthrown permanently. So because of this, because we can't afford to fail in this, we are to never go alone. We take the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with us in this endeavor. That's exactly what John did. And he was proclaiming it to these folks. 
We see God the Father in Him who is and who was and who is to come, and we also see Jesus Christ. These are pretty clear, but do you know who the seven spirits are? There are some who have said this is referring to angels sitting before the throne of God because of the seven stars we'll read about in verse 20 of chapter 1. But this view has a few problems because if these are angels, their placement in verse 4 could be construed to mean that they are objects of worship just like God the Father and God the Son. We know we are not to worship angels. It tells us that in Revelation 19 verse 10 and chapter 22 verse 9. The context of Revelation 1 verse 4 seems to be focused on God, not angels. Even though angels are sometimes referred to as spirits like in Hebrews 1 verse 7. Some people say they are different aspects of God's nature. But there are only six found in the original manuscripts. Someone later on added a seventh apparently in some manuscripts. And so this is a very... Uh, questionable interpretation due to that. Others have stated that the seven spirits are merely symbolic since seven is the number of completion, they say, then the seven spirits really include all spirits who are before the throne of God, but this view has the same potential problem as the first. Why are these, these spirits are not God? Why are they included when it seems to be focused on God? Well, some will just simply shrug that question off and say, well, you're getting too deep into the weeds now. And all that, all that John is really saying is God, Jesus, and all the heavenly hosts in, you know, in the audience, they wish you well and are essentially saying hello. You can believe that, I suppose. But I believe there is a better explanation myself. The seven spirits may be referring to God the Holy Spirit. If read to mean the Holy Spirit, then the entire verse becomes more sensible and impactful because it includes the entire trinity in the benediction and greeting. But let me point you to the verse from which this view is taken. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4. We're looking at verses uh, 1 through 6. It says, And the angel then that talked with me came again, and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, Well, I've looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold with a bowl uh, upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon. And seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. And two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked to me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked to me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now here, stop there for a minute. Zechariah equates the seven lamps with the Spirit of God. John also equates the seven lamps with the seven spirits. In Revelation 4, verse 5, he says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So we know we're talking about the same thing. Now, let's look at Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Those seven... They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Now, here, the eyes of the Lord going to and fro throughout the whole earth, that's sometimes been interpreted of uh, angels. But that's not what's being said of here. Revelations 5 verse 6, we read of the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And the seven eyes, we're told, are part of the Lamb, which is Christ. So these seven eyes, they're part of Christ, just as the Holy Spirit is a part of Christ. 
We serve one God who manifests in three persons. This passage is not speaking about angels. It's synonymous with Zechariah's vision. This argument also has a few potential weaknesses. One commentator says the following. It seems odd that the Holy Spirit would be referred to in the plural, spirits, rather than the usual singular, spirit. But since the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, perhaps the number seven is being used as a symbol for perfection. The number seven is often used of completeness or perfection in the Bible, and it's used 54 times throughout the book. We're going to have a little study on the number seven in Revelation later. But the point is John could be equating the Holy Spirit with perfection. The bottom line is this. We know Revelation is replete with symbolism, and the number seven is a recurring theme throughout the book. Zechariah 4, verse 6, God declares that it is his spirit, his essence, his presence, that ensure the success of Zerubbabel. God has angels at his disposal all the time. And they certainly are representative of his power. But God's power resides within himself, not in those angels. You take all the angels away, God is still just as powerful. And we see that not only does God's power reside within himself, but God equates his Holy Spirit with the seven lamps. Those are those seven spirits. So it's my conclusion that the best understanding of the seven spirits in Revelation 1 verse 4 is that it's the Holy Spirit. Now when we read it this way, we can understand that God is approaching the seven churches of Asia not alone, but with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He came fully prepared. That's the point I'm trying to make. As we prepare to preach God's word, we must not only think about what we want to say. We must not only prepare the minds of our listeners, and we must not only deliver the message in a way to counter pride, but we must go with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the example that John left for us, and it's why Revelation endures to this day and reaches in the hearts of saved and lost alike. So as we conclude, I just want to summarize today's thoughts in this way. Take time for the small stuff, for the niceties. Don't rush forward using a sledgehammer when a lighter touch is required. This is hard for me sometimes. Maybe it's hard for you too. We're never to compromise on the Word of God. But taking the time to be holy is to take the time to convey the love and the thoughtfulness of the mind of Christ in our actions. These are the boundaries of that spiritual match, that game like in volleyball or tennis that we're playing. These are the boundaries that we can't step out of, that we will have a more powerful game if we do it this way, the way that John showed us. And just like in tennis or volleyball, there's a need for thought, preparation, and finesse in our delivery. If we're playing to win, we can't afford to lose. It isn't that we're playing to win for ourselves either. It isn't about being right. It's about saving souls. It's about bringing glory to God by rising above the pride and the uncontrolled emotions that are characteristic of humanity. You win by taking the name of Jesus with you and submitting to his will and ways, just as John did. And I would encourage you, I hope that by, this is a different sort of lesson, I understand that, but I hope you can see that every word in the Scripture, every word 
Even a seemingly simple and innocuous greeting has deep meaning if we will dig into it. And it's there for a reason. So John led this way for a reason. You're going to see why as we continue this study. And I hope that uh, you find this beneficial uh, to have this in mind as we go forward. So uh, that's the message for this evening. Uh, If there is anybody here that is not baptized and feels the Holy Spirit laying it on your heart that now is the time, we're ready for you. And if you are already saved and you find yourself struggling with the cares of life or sin or you just need encouragement or any other thing that the church can pray for you for, we ask you to step forward at this time as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.